So you can't piggyback on anybody else's due diligence. You got to do the work. You got to get to the unit economics and the business plan and the product market fit and everything else on your own. You have the luxury of if you're on the beach, say, I'd like to sign up for a six-week project or let's do it on a consulting for the first 30 days. Let's pre-negotiate what we're going to convert into full-time, but let's get to know each other. That gives you the opportunity. So, I mean, I still think it's a seller's market. I think talent has the upper hand in the market and you got to do the work to figure out, is there a vision? Is there unit economics? Is there mark product market fit? Is there real revenue? Is there diversity in the in the spread of where the revenue goes across the customer base. So it's real work, but people are just like, eh, three great meetings are really cool. And you know, I'm starting on Monday. Oh, okay. Dear friends, it's Kurt Derdix and welcome back. If this is your first time listening, I am so glad you found us. This week, I'm excited to share my conversation with my friend and mentor, Jim Jonasson. JJ, as he's known, is a legend in the Southern California technology community, and he's the CEO and founder of JJA Venture Search, based in Santa Monica, and providing search and recruitment services for VC and private equity-backed tech and internet companies, specializing in executing C-suite and vice president searches and building world-class teams. Jim has led nearly 1,000 searches in his career, and he's founded and built two successful software companies as well. Also, since 2007, JJ is the founder of ThursdayNights.org, convening LA's tech and media leaders, and it's hands down one of my favorite event series. And Jim has also co-founded the Digital Coast Roundtable, along with LA Mayor Dick Rorden, and launched a lawnmower, the LA New Media Roundtable. A big brother since 1992 and a member of the board of Santa Monica's Boys and Girls Club, JJ is one of my favorite humans and this episode has lots to offer anyone hiring or looking for their next assignment. So on to today's show, here's JJ. All right, we're live. I am so happy to have this conversation with a really good friend and mentor, Jim. It's so good to see you, my man. How are you? Doing great. It's, you know, gorgeous Saturday morning, a little chilly, but appreciate you pushing this to a weekend. Yes, sir. Where are you? Are you in the, the desert house? I am in the desert house. We're in Palm Desert. This is the COVID-inspired office, man cave, and boom room out here. So my short commute is about... 15 steps from the house. Yeah, I love it. You know, I've been really looking forward to this conversation for a while. You know, you've been such a great friend and mentor to me. I almost feel like you're my non-blood uncle, like my Hawaiian uncle. You know, everybody's uncles in Hawaii, right? That's right, brother. And uh, you were at our wedding. We had a small wedding and you were, you know, very gracious to come. And you even sacrificed some of your own personal family stuff to come be with us. And I was very generous of you. So appreciated that. And during COVID, Holden and I were in Venice and then it got kind of sketchy. So we went out to our desert house out in Joshua Tree and you and I got to spend some time and you got me, you were very gracious to get me on the golf course and to play some golf with you. And that was really fun because it was like, it was a weird time where you weren't really seeing anybody. That was kind of surreal. I think of like watching you play guitar and going, holy shit, you know, Curdy's badass and then surfing, you know. So getting to see golf kind of balance things out was kind of nice. 
it's all about uh, staying humble and beginner's mind. I mean, you know, but I thank you. And you hooked me up with your golf coach. And I think, you know, just, it takes so much time. <laughs> oh, indeed it does. And it's, it's not a sport, it's a vice. So like, you know, kind of, it's, it's an obsession. Yeah. What's your club again? It's a beautiful club. Stony Eagle Golf Club. Oh man, it's so beautiful. So beautiful. There's so much we can cover, so let's get into it. You have, you know, you're one of these guys that sort of, that everybody knows. I'm one of those guys too, but you're even more so that. And, you know, like recognizes like, and I so appreciate what you've done with your career. I think, you know, you and I are cut from very similar cloth as far as, far as like, you know, building community and, you know, like really taking care of people and it's good business. It's actually a lot more fun to do business that way. And the transactions come out of it. And the business that you're in is very, very challenging because you could be doing 10 searches, the exact same search for 10 different companies, and you're going to have a pretty varied outcome. I mean, by and large, at least that's, I have experience in this space. I just come out of three years of general manager at Hunt Club, where we're actually somewhat competitive. We were sort of frenemies and you were so gracious about all of that. And uh, so I, I wanted to kind of dig in about how do you describe, like kind of a layman's terms, how do you describe to your family what you do? It's a good question. I'm not sure that I understand. Jim goes off or grandpa Jim goes off. I mean, I've done headhunting my whole career and started three software companies and do events and kind of community building with Thursday nights. And we invest in, you know, Mimi and I have our family office. We invest in, right now we got 35 portfolio companies. And so it's kind of a lot of things, but mostly I'm a coach and I'm a partner and we're constantly, we're obsessed with talent and we're constantly looking to, with whatever customer or client portfolio company, to just ensure that they've got the best people that they can. Because as I think about today, for years, everybody was looking for yield. Oh, you can't find yield anywhere. There's no, it's really hard to find yield in any asset class. And now I feel like in this bizarre macro, talent is the only leverage. So do you have the best field on the team? Can you create an edge? Can you create leverage there? We think that's the only place you can do it. But I guess everybody knows that I'm constantly meeting and interviewing talented people. I've been incredibly lucky. I love what I do. It's jump out of bed every day. I think my family definitely sees my workaholic always on nature, but they know I'm a people person and I, I'm super lucky and fortunate to be able to work with people on all sides of what I do, just like you've done for a lot of your career. Yeah, fair. How would you describe to your customers what you do? We sell used people. <laughs> That's funny. Well, all the way down, that's kind of what we do. And when you think about that, a client comes to us and says, there's an open chair. We're not sure which chair it is, but there's an open chair. You got to help us with it. So you dig in and we're trying to help them understand what the exact kind of set of hats that individual is going to wear. A lot of times where we started in the conversation, the search that we're doing a week later is very different. So we get involved at that level and it's, you said it, this stuff's hard because it's people on all sides. It's, there are lots of emotions and there are lots of politics and there are lots of, you know, kind of dynamics 
that make it, it's never the same. You pattern match, you learn things, you start to be able to recognize things, but each one is totally unique and you're constantly learning and relearning every time you go to bat. Who would you describe as an ideal customer or client? What's kind of the market segment you look after? Yeah. So, you know, we think of it as it's growth stage. So that's growth, private equity, growth equity, middle market. We feel that that's the place where we can deliver the most value. We work and have worked in very early stage and venture and startup and seed. We feel like that's the place where the challenges and the and really the inventory of relationships that we've built, we can create the most leverage for the client there. It's kind of like you... It's like you grow with your class. You start out and like you're placing sales reps and then it's managers and then it's then it's VP level, then it's C level, then it's board and everything. But it's also from the stage, the challenges that come into it excite us. And we also feel like this market is like a barbell. It's great to be in super early stage seed. It's great to be in mature growth stage, even beyond growth into scale. In the middle, it's going to be really difficult in 2023 and probably halfway through 2024. So it's growth in the context of private equity, not so much VC. That's where you're at, sort of in that mid-market PE, private equity. Yeah, we're growth equity, private equity, middle market. And then it's, we define it as tech. If you think of the pie, one third of what we do is tech-enabled services and SaaS software. One third of it is consumer and digital. And then one third of it is really emerging technologies, which include health tech, fintech, web three, areas like that. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's interesting because there's this kind of, there's this weird pendulum that's happened and I'm experienced it. And it has to do with COVID. It has to do with sort of the great migration and people moved and we moved twice throughout COVID. So from Venice out to the desert, well, actually three times. Then from the desert, we quarantined up to Ventura County and then we're back in the city now in Calabasas. And, you know, the... You know, this kind of idea that everybody's going to work remote till the end of time, I think was sort of like got a lot of people excited, but I think we're coming into a realization that that's not really functional. And, you know, I've experienced a desire and it's part of why I've, I've moved on to uh, start a new company is to be close to people again. And actually I want to be able to have an office and I want to be able to be in community with folks that I know and have spent a lot of time with and want to develop those relationships. And I think a lot of that has to do with also trust. It's probably a great way to mitigate risk. And it just feels right. I think it's just sort of like millions of years of human evolution is like we're, you know, by a campfire to be together with people in a real world and not on, on Zoom all day. And so... Well, I was looking at the positioning on your site, which was really interesting. And you said that we're not global, we're not generalist, we're 100% digital and we're local. I guess having said that, like, what is your philosophy? Like I, I was reading an article you wrote that was on LinkedIn that was really felt spot on as to win the war for talent, think like a sports team owner. And you give a pretty spot on metaphor. Talk to us a little bit about your how you work with the customers and what is it that you guys do better than your competitors in that context? I think I'll comment first on your thoughts about, you know, remote and hybrid. And I feel like the changes that COVID brought on us are not going to sort themselves out next quarter, next year. It's going to be a decade. I think among them are the rapid digitization of everything. So 
Andreessen said, software eats the world. All companies are now tech companies. And if you're not, you're screwed. Yeah. And we find ourselves doing work with companies that if you said five years ago, you're going to be working with an underwear company and a plant company and a, and a genomics company, I would have gone, no way. And we are. So the second piece is that I feel like not only did it kind of push us out geographically, there's a generational change, people's motivation, what kind of drives them is changing. But I think fundamentally, I remember when I was a kid, we had relatives come in from Ireland. And this was like my third cousin or something from Galway. He was on his first year after college, like everywhere else in the world, people travel for a year and came and he went all around the States and we had dinner and he said, he goes, you Americans live to work. And I'm like, no way, man. He's like, yeah, you live to work. We work to live. We do our stuff that just kind of like gives us a lifestyle. And, and it kind of came home to roost. And I feel like 20 months, so it's like the Puritan work ethic and one of the pillars of what America is about, the American dream, you work hard, you don't be without a job, you define yourself by your, you know, your identity is your role and your job and your profession. And then suddenly for like 20 months, the government sends you money and the economy shut down and suddenly that work shit was overrated. You know, I get a little side hustle, I'm going to start a business, I'm going to travel, I'm going to not live next to the office. I mean, it's going to be an adventure the next 10 years as we kind of see as this stuff sort itself out. I mean, I think the big difference in this market versus other downturns or challenging headwinds that we've seen is the amount of capital on the sidelines. I mean, there's just like, and for innovation for our world. So, and you got a, a red hot employment economy when everything else is going. So I, I guess we love working with growth stage companies. We love working with tech companies. They come to us. Again, with that, there's a vacancy, there's a problem. We got to do something. We got to upgrade or we got to replace or we got to grow. And we've developed a methodology that enables us to run a process really fast. I'd say what differentiates us is we're a small team of partners. The partners do the work. We optimize a methodology for speed, resiliency, high visibility, and we're driving toward that finish line all the time. We're absolutely relentless. We never give up. We've learned the hard way that when you think you have the finalist and you're at the altar, so many things can happen now. We've had two clients where candidates have dear John them at the point where they've signed an offer letter and they just didn't show up and they sent an email. I mean, it's, it's unprecedented. One of my searches, the candidate died. So we never give up and then we guarantee the placement for a full year. So afterward, you're still kind of pipelining for that need and you're keeping in touch with both sides making sure everything's going. So these are relationships. You know, 60% of the clients that work with us come back to do more searches, some of them 10, 12, 15 searches. So we care about that relationship. Somebody once said, there's like, there's these two lines. One is performing. Performance is always going to be lumpy, but the, if you can lean on the relationship and that's always going to be strong, we know that based on applying the methodology, working as hard as we can, never giving up, we're going to be there. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that I always appreciated about you is you're just straight up and you, you know, like you just tell people kind of the good, bad, and the ugly and get grounded in reality. And, and that's always how I tried to handle working with searches as I kind of got more into it. You know, when I was kind of early on, I didn't have any context and it'd be like, yeah, it's going to be great. And then you learn the hard way. And, you know, it is it's a really, really such a fascinating and challenging kind of like a volatile business 
And to your point, not only is cyclically volatile because of the economy boom and bust, but the dimension of the people, it's messy. And I think the sports team owner is such a cool framework. Talk to us a little bit about the article you wrote and your kind of your thinking around that and how can people use team building, professional sports team building as a framework for world-class teams. Look at what pro sports teams have. Draft, combine, all kinds of scouting and films and you know, scouts that are out there out in the field. What do companies have? They have an ill-equipped, under-resourced talent acquisition function. They have job boards and LinkedIn and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's just like... It's like weak sauce. What a CEO worries about, it's like, hey, I got to make sure we don't run out of capital and I got to make sure that the product works. We got a product work fit. We got to, but mostly it all comes back to talent, but they don't think about it purely from the standpoint of talent. So, I mean, a coach is constantly looking at whether in the dugout or on the sideline with the headset on and a team of experts up above in the booth. You're constantly looking at who's out there. Is there situational awareness? Do we have advantage? Are we getting across the gain line? So, I think we try to evangelize that and say, constantly be re-recruiting the team that you have, constantly be looking at their performance. Ray Dalio used it as the back of the baseball card, which earned run average, on base percentage, et cetera. And there's just not enough of that that happens. And because we get really close and we're a team and we're a squad and we're a culture, a lot of times bad behavior, lack of performance doesn't get turned into action as quickly and then as rigorously as it needs to, to absolutely field the best team. Yeah. The thing that comes to mind is like, even with studying for my CFA right now, a chartered financial analyst, and it's a lot of work, but one of the things that kind of struck out or kind of leaped out of the page when I was studying on the accounting bit is that human capital is sort of on the expense side there's no sort of way to objectively measure the value of the team it's they call it an intrinsic value it's similar to brand and to your point like it's sort of systemic that we don't have a more objective way to think about rohc return on human capital doesn't exist yeah it's interesting who are some of the ceos or teams that you've either worked with or you've sort of admired from afar that kind of embody weird what you're thinking about? I'll call out a couple. Adam Miller and Cornerstone On Demand, one of LA's greatest stories, success stories. Started on the kitchen table, two guys doing a kind of a learning. And Adam was CEO, you know, from that kitchen table through IPO into scale, almost all the way to when they were taken private recently. He was the chief product officer all along the way until we did the chief product officer search about two and a half years ago. And just an amazing, hard-charging, focused, passionate, and his lens. So every CEO has a lens. It's a spreadsheet. It's a sales pipeline. It's a product roadmap. His lens was the org chart. How can we focus on succession planning? How can we give people the skills that they upskill them, give them new opportunities, re-recruit them? I found him to just be absolutely amazing. And he was, you said it straightforward, Ray Dalio style, radical candor, called it like it was. And so the other one who I learned a lot from and I thought was pretty amazing was Christian Chabot, who was CEO of Tableau. Took that company from going into Stanford when he was between assignments, came out of a startup 
And he's like, I'm going to go find a technology in like a technology transfer way. And he met the guy that did underlying visualization technology for Pixar. And he said, hey, we could apply this to the last mile of data. And he reinvented visualization of data and, and data analytics. The thing that, that I remember about him was his first three coders were CTOs. He recruited CTOs and said, well, here you're going to have to code. And two years later, those guys were still coding and they were still kind of deep inside of the technology and executing. And it was amazing. He had this rock star team and they waited all the way into revenue before they raised a dollar. And then NEA took the A, took the B, took them all the way. And it was New York Stock Exchange, trading symbol data. It was just a great story. And they were human beings all the way along. They worked off. They were totally lifetime learners and constantly looking for how do you find an advantage. Those were two that come to mind. Yeah, I love that. We're in an interesting moment in time where here it's late January 2023. You know, we might be in a recession, depending on what sector you're in. Housing for sure. Parts of tech, I definitely have just been pretty gutted. And that's our world. How, what advice would you give to folks that are kind of, contemplating what's next, either actively, well, maybe we start there. Like for people that are actively finding themselves laid off and they have a great academic and professional background, it seems the reabsorption rate to get a new job is, you know, easy enough. Is that fair to say? Or are you seeing that, that there, those people are still- Tens of thousands of people were laid off in the fall. North of 80% of those that wanted to find gigs were in new gigs within 60 days. It's like, so there's- Seven openings for every worker, it's way more than that in tech. So the jobs are out there. What advice then would you give to the talent that, you know, have great backgrounds, they're passive, they have a job now, but maybe for whatever reason, they're not thrilled with the function anymore. They're burnt out on the role. They're not feeling the vision of the company or, you know, for whatever reason, companies, you know, just couldn't figure out and they want to figure out what's next. What advice would you give these kind of folks on how to think about, you know, running a campaign to find their sort of perfect assignment. So glad you asked, Curdy D. I f it amazes me. I think I've interviewed, you know, half a million people in my career. And I look at resumes and I ask people when they've got three skid marks on their resume, I'm like, what were you thinking? What was attractive about that company and that opportunity? Oh, you know, my former boss recruited me. Oh, I got referred in by my college roommate. Oh, he was close to home. So it's just like, and then a lot of times, now I'm talking to candidates that are in companies where it was all smoke and mirrors. And it's like, but Sequoia backed them or NEA backed them. Or so you can't piggyback on anybody else's due diligence. You got to do the work. You got to get to the unit economics and the business plan and the product market fit and everything else on your own. You have the luxury of, if you're on the beach, say, I'd like to sign up for a six-week project, or let's do it on a consulting for the first 30 days. Let's pre-negotiate what we're going to convert into full-time, but let's get to know each other. That gives you the opportunity. So, I mean, I still think it's a seller's market. I think talent has the upper hand in the market, and you got to do the work to figure out, is there a vision? Is there unit economics? Is there mark product market fit? Is there real revenue? Is there diversity in the spread of where the revenue you know, goes across the customer base. So it's real work, but people are just like, eh, three great meetings are really cool. And, you know, I'm starting on Monday. Oh, okay. How, let me know how that worked. Why isn't there more of, you know, contract to hire 
motion in our world? I'm seeing that there's a fair bit. We've got a client that we just did seven searches for, and five of them we did try before we buy. And two of the five were still working full-time jobs. It was like, do this on evenings and weekends. Let's focus on this one project, and let's get to know each other. And it was like, it saved us a lot of heartache. And it also, it gave the CEO the ability to really own in on what he needed. It was like, you're right. That person was really good at that. I figured out in that six weeks that we needed something different. Yeah, I like that. Ben Horowitz says it in the in the hard thing about the hard thing. Don't hire for a job till you've done the job. Kind of get in there in that project, if you will, and get to know what it really takes and what kind of outcomes you're looking for. Yeah. When I transitioned out of CitySourced in 2012, I ended up, which was abrupt and you know the backstory, and it was a, kind of a painful co-founder uh, blow up and I got the on the short end of the stick. So I was scrambling a little bit and I ended up getting a consulting, three consulting assignments, one at Esri, one at DocStock with Jason Nazar and uh, one with uh, Ryan Scott at CauseCast. And that was summer 2020, 2012. And my thought was, all right, you know, I need to just hustle and like, get some work and uh, sold some consulting and then crushed it. And I got offers at all three to go full-time. And I ended up taking the gig at Esri. And that was a great chapter. Yeah, I ended up, ended up getting acquired by Intuit. So I probably might have made a little bit more money had I gone and worked for Jason. Bless his heart. He's great. And But the experience of working with Jack Dangermon and those guys was just incredible. And I think to your point, like what I did out of that exercise was this idea of imagine the day. And it was trying to imagine like what my perfect day would be and create a almost like a design brief of like, you know, what are the important answers to the perfect day? And then kind of work backwards at what questions would you ask? Like, you know, what market, what customer type? Is it B2B or consumer? I mean, you can, you know, are you working in an office? Like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And if you've done your job as the candidate interviewing and you get that place to where it's going to due diligence, negotiation, and an offer, it's your opportunity to say, put me under non-disclosure and let me get in the data room. I'd like to meet two or three more people on the leadership team. I'd like to meet two or three more people. I'd like to talk to a few customers. I want to do my channel checks. Anybody that says no to that is either hiding something or probably something you don't, somebody you don't want to work with or for. Yeah. I would love that you're promoting this and also seeing more of the contract of full-time pattern. I think it's just, it's more functional. It's more pragmatic. It's just like, you know, it's just, I don't I think maybe especially the world I come from with venture backed where it's just everybody's trying to compress time cycles and hit a hit a hiring plan head count OKR. It's like, you know, it feels like sometimes the forest lost from the trees. That's the wrong metric. I think it also goes back to stage though. Private equity, growth stage, middle market. You don't have the luxury of that. You know exactly what you need. You need a chief financial officer that has X, Y, and Z has done A, B, and C, and those investors and those CEOs and CHROs aren't looking to for an athlete that might be able to do the gig. It is, we know exactly what we want. So there it's run a discrete process. It's really fast. Give them optionality. And then you're going to do a lot more due diligence. They're going to do a lot more due diligence before they make a hire. So again, it, it kind of depends on the stage and what's the situation with the candidate. Right now, there's a lot of candidates out there that are between assignments. So it's a great opportunity on both sides. Two kind of a two-part question, opposite side of the coin. Where do candidates screw up in the hiring process and shoot themselves in the face or the foot? And then the opposite, where do hiring managers and companies screw up? 
good ones both. Candidates, go in cold to the interview. Go in cold. They're not prepared. Yeah, I'm like on-air talent. I'm in here. I'm seeing what you got for me. I'm kind of leaning back. I'm learning a little bit of acquainted. Candidate going in on an interview, I don't care if it's with a coordinator in the HR department, have 10 incredibly thought-provoking, challenging questions ready, have done your homework on every aspect of the company's brand and culture and reputation, ask a ton of questions, know more about the company than the interviewer. There's nothing that's going to get a company more excited about you than someone that does that kind of preparation. Secondly, don't forget to ask for the order. It's like, again, candidates can be aloof. Candidates can be cold. Candidates can be, I'm going to be this like perfect fit for the thing. But if you don't say, wow, I really love your guy's story. And man, the people that I've met are really great. Hey, how am I doing? Ask, how am I doing versus the competition? Am I, you can give yourself the opportunity to say no, but get the offer. So I think too many times people fail to show that enthusiasm about the opportunity and about the company. So those are kind of the big things. Get really prepared and don't be afraid to lean in and show that enthusiasm. Yeah. When Nick Romitis, the Hunt Club CEO, was recruiting me, he's out of Chicago. He flew out to LA and I actually gave him the idea. I said, hey, why don't you come out to LA and I'll line up a bunch of meetings and you can basically like, you know, see my community, probably get some business out of it. Worst case, you know, you end up not hiring me, at least you're going to get some business out of it, hopefully. And uh, best case is, you know, we want to party together and it's great. And and came out at 8 a.m. breakfast at Cora's Coffee Shop in Santa Monica, where you hit me to. By the way, Jim knows all the best places to go in pretty much L.A. and Chicago. I remember when we had uh, breakfast there, me and you, where Anthony Kiedis was there. I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. You know, we're out, Chili Peppers lead singer. So anyways, Nick loved it. And then we just had a... Uh, I think we had a call with Ben Quo from SoCal Tech right after that in the car on the way to a meeting. And I just had, I basically had to meet 12 people in like 12 hours in LA, which was really hard to do. You put together, here's the full day. You get to try before you buy in one day. I love it. Yeah. And I remember we were driving from like Hollywood to downtown for a dinner with uh, Rachel Horning, who you and I both helped get placed at, at Cooley. And he was just like, dude, like, you're going to crush this. Like, he basically was offered me the gig right on the spot and uh, fast-tracked it into, you know, on-site back in Chicago. And yeah, and I just so grateful for that opportunity. But I think, you know, that was my intuition about it is like, let's try to create a win-win so that like we can both see if it's a good fit or not. And it just creates, it's so much more functional that way. And it, it really didn't take me that much time to set those meetings up. So you just explained part of the answer of how do companies screw it up? They run an elongated, too long process that sends all the wrong messages all the time to the candidates that are in the process. So you move slowly, you move methodically. It's like this person's paralyzed. If this is the way they make decisions about things that are going to affect my career and my function and my bonus and my ability to perform, they're sending me the wrong message and I'm out of it. Another thing that they do is one thing as headhunters we can't deal with is Let's debrief after the interview. Kurt, what'd you think of the candidate? Ah, you know, he didn't light my world on fire. Really? Okay, well, let's get specific. So it's this kind of subjective, emotional, a little bit of recency bias, a little bit of, oh, I had this feeling. And, you know, you got to have a scorecard and you got to have a set of lenses that you're looking through, set of boxes that you're checking off as you're talking about a candidate. So you have an actual qualitative and quantitative 
benchmark that you can say, oh, so to course correct, we need someone who is more introverted and someone's probably a little more technical and probably someone's a little bit more X, Y, or Z. We can't deal with, hey, he didn't light my world on fire. Or there was just something that wasn't right. <laughs> yeah. we At Hunt Club, we put together a really great kind of kickoff call process. And one of the core bits of that was the candidate scorecard. And we try to come up with, you know, what are the, the key attributes? And I remember you had shared with me some material you had worked on that was really helpful to me around like kind of these core attributes that are cross-functional, like universal, like have to do with, you know, stage of company. Like, you know, you don't want to be hiring somebody at a venture early stage that that hasn't had that experience or they you know, they're just like a big company person, you know, or for example, so if you're a services business, you probably want to make sure that somebody's had some decent chops and experience in a services business dealing with clients and, you know, like, and then you have like the functional requirements, whether it's sales, marketing, whatever function and, you know, and building out, you know, like a, basically a template or a framework for probably like, you know, a handful of archetypes and there's probably going to be like the unicorn that like checks all the boxes and you'll probably have a persona that is, you know, has, how do you kind of talk us through how you think about building your process on profiling candidates and where do companies screw up and where's success there? So I've got four partners between us. We're just about to hit 4,000 searches that we've completed successfully. So in that, we've developed a series of five sprints that we do. And basically, it never fails if you commit to and stick to the process, stick to the, to the methodology. So first, it, it's all like you said, there's a kickoff in which you say, tell us what you're looking for. Tell us your story. Tell us what you're looking for. But we listen from the standpoint of, so the must-haves are these, the nice-to-haves are those. And we think this is what the cultural and personality fit is. So we listen to that story, then we go off, then we come back within three days and we throw 15 resumes down on the table, a la casting agent in Hollywood. You're the director, this is your movie, here's 15 headshots on the table with resumes. Now, go pour a glass of wine or a cold beer, sit on the back porch and just go through the resumes and react to them. What did you like? And what we're saying is these are some archetypes that we think are cover the four corners of what you told us you were looking for. But as we then listen to their reactions, their biases, their preferences, the things that set them off, we now go, ah, now we've honed it in. So from there, we say scorecards a little bit tighter. Then we go off and we say, we'll see you in a week. And a week later, we show up with three candidates for them to meet. And then a partner sits in the interview and shadows the interview. So what happens there is we hear the CEO pitched the opportunity. We go, oh, three or four new sound bites that we totally missed from the original story. But when the CEO was selling that candidate, he nailed it and we got that. Secondly, you told us you were looking for these three things, but you went a lot deeper in the Q&A in these areas. Boom, we elevated some and demoted some. And then lastly, we heard the kind of pregnant pauses, the uncomfortable silences and the moments where you're like, I can see how the APIs work now, and I can see how we can make a personality fit. And we freeze code. So now we've basically said, scorecard is locked. We went through the central cast. We went through the first three calibration interviews. Now we know exactly what you need. Now you're going to be on-air talent. Here's the scorecard. You're only going to see candidates that we say, check nearly all or all the boxes, and we think are going to be a pretty good fit. Let's go. So now we're driving down the funnel, and 
we're finding those needle in the haystack candidates. And the way that we do that is it's kind of three buckets at the top of the funnel. We've got 50,000 people that we track in our database and we have relationships with. Secondly, we go out to our network and we say, Curdy D working on a cool job. Cooley needs a head of biz dev. Who do you know? Oh, you got to be reach a horny. Boom. Referrals from trusted sources. And then the last one is we actually work with our offshore research team and we create a heat map of the company's competitors, sectors, et cetera, where our client says that would be the perfect place to get people that have the right skills. And then we actually go in and we find everybody sitting in those companies that have the right titles in the right locations, the right level of seniority, and we go after them. And then we hit them with in-mail and an email and a call. We get introduced by somebody and we see who raises their hand and we drive down the process. And hopefully six weeks later, we got a short list of three great candidates. And usually we do. Where does the recruiting community and recruiters, where do they screw up? They don't do the work. If there's not rigor, if there's not speed, if there's not that kind of continuity, you know, where you're really driving ahead and you're challenging the client to really get the expectation set between you and you lose track, three weeks go by, oh, well, we didn't get those candidates scheduled, unacceptable, we have to get those candidates section. You did the interviews, but you didn't give us the feedback, unacceptable, we need the feedback. Otherwise, we stand down. So to me, if the work gets done, if the rigor is maintained, if you keep that you know, that forward momentum, that's what you've got to have. You got to have real partnership and real engagement. If you do, it works almost flawlessly, you know, and then the other part of it is there's got to be reasonable, you know, kind of on both sides. So you said you're looking for this three hat rock star and you want to pay him 150K and we're going, that's not going to happen. We can either raise the bar and comp or you can lower the expectations on the requirements because we constantly show you market. Here's what market is for that role, for that set of skills, for that experience, that personality. Yeah, that's interesting. One thing that comes to mind is this idea that if you want a pay raise, you got to quit, go to another company. Like, why is that the case? I mean, intuitively, it makes sense that, you know, just like you're going to not just as a shrewd, quote unquote, business person, just give people raises willy nilly. But what do you think that would? Here's a difference in stage, early stage, venture backed. You get people, you race to 60 employees or 100 employees. Now you're out recruiting and you're kind of looking at market. And you've got market comp, but guess what? You've screwed up parity because you're now hiring at this level and the people that have been working their butts off, you're not using data in a thoughtful succession, you know, kind of internally focused human resource and talent management. And you're going to lose people because no one's stupid. If you're bringing in somebody who's doing the same thing and they're making more and you haven't reset private equity, growth stage, public companies, HR is a true strategic function. And the boards have a compensation committee and are constantly looking at flight risk and succession planning and re-recruiting the rock stars that we already have. Yeah, tap back to your sports team analogy and the kind of the farm leagues. It's sort of like when you zoom out to that level, that kind of there is sort of that motion happening, but it's maybe at the stage level and like kind of big fish gobble up the little ones. But then you get into a situation where it's this weird thing where there's certain kind of person and I'm one of those where, you know, like I love my experience at Hunt Club. We went from 38 head count to 220 in the three years I was there from C to series B. And that was a great run, but like, I like a smaller org. I like an org that has like, you know, 
I mean, and look, I was at Ezra a long time too, 5,000 people there. And, but I was like an entrepreneur there with a small team. So I guess it's like there's certain kind of folks that like, it's almost like, you know, whether it's like golfing or surfing, there's certain environments, you know, that people like to play in. Anyways, I'm kind of just waxing philosophically and trying to think through a thoughtful question. Well, one of the ways that manifests itself with us is candidate sends a resume. You know, and you do the kind of perfunctory, let's walk you through, walk through your experience. But we ask them, what are your passions? Tell us about your family. Tell us about your priorities and your obligations. And tell us about the dream scenarios and what are your superpowers and what's your Achilles heel. And we get them talking and we start to understand you don't have the risk profile to do the gig that you're saying that you're going for. You are really better suited for something else. And again, we kind of hold up the mirror and challenge so that we're not wasting our time and getting caught at the end of the day going, you know, that really wasn't for me. Yeah, fair. Are there any services in market to help people with resume writing or even like practicing how to pitch and kind of sell themselves that you're aware of or recommend? I mean, back to the sports team, there's agents and managers and unions. And so here it's like, no, I mean, I think you've got to talk to people in your network. I mean, I do this. I have my six favorite resumes that are real people. And people that I look at and I say, you're amazing. Your resume sucks. I'm going to say, I'm going to let you look at these six resumes. I'm going to tell you what I liked about them. Then you should delete them and come back to me with what you come back after that. And then we run that career diagnostic. So they go, wow, I'd never even thought about my career this way. It's like too many people are the accidental turret in career. I remember in 2012, when I was transitioning, I went to you had this exact conversation and I asked you to look at my resume and you're like, bro, like you look like a digital healer or something like, you know, it was, it was, stuff was like all over the place and it was so like, yeah, <laughs> it was not disciplined. You had to shape that Curdy D narrative. Yeah, it was, yeah, it really helped me out. You know, that would be an interesting blog post for you to put up or references to kind of like an abstraction or an example of what those six resumes would be. Well, I, you know, I don't know if you have that as a resource, but I think the market would appreciate it. Stay tuned. It's about to be published. There we go. Both the career. So we say, take control of your career in 2023, run the career diagnostic, and then tune up your CV. So yes, we got Well, another reason to sign up for the JJA newsletter at JJA.co. So that's a great occasion to go sign up for the awesome content that Jim and that gang are, are creating at JJA.co. Kind of turning the page, and I think this is something that relates a little bit to the question around how you guys are different. It relates to community. Thursday night's organization that you've been a kind of the founder and uh, chief protagonist for a long time is objectively probably my favorite event series that I go to. And you do kind of like a range where you'll do these intimate dinners and thanks for inviting me to your last one for the holiday dinner. It was so great in Brentwood. Um, and then you'll do these kind of larger scale like kind of holiday events and uh, and some stuff in between. The quality of people that are at these events are just top shelf and it's a good mix of people that are really, you know, working hard, but you also having fun. And uh, there's a lot of, it feels very collegiate. People really care about each other. These people that have known each other, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in some cases. And uh, it's one of the best things about the Los Angeles tech community. And I had a good fortune to be on your board, I think, in 2016. So that was very generous of you to, to have me. And uh, you've been able to raise quite a bit of money for Boys and Girls Club as well. 
which I think is a really cool story. Um, how did, and you always do it at the best venues. Like, I guess, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a connoisseur, but you're to the nth degree, I guess. Talk to us about Thursday nights and kind of maybe the light bulb and why you do it. And then how do you get so good at knowing where all the best spots are? A lot to unpack there, but Thursday nights is the real highlight of my work life and career and profession. And we've been super fortunate to be able to convene this community. So it really grew out of what I started with Lawnmower in the 90s. And that was kind of bring together this weird digital media tech, you know, LA scene and raise money for the Boys and Girls Club. Thursday nights was Jordan Purcell and myself at the kind of bottom of the 08 kind of nuclear winner. It was like, all right, SoCal is going to happen and we got to do our part. So let's just get people together and have fun. We'd seen all the talking head events and everything. And we were like, if you get the room right, and if you get the people right, and you get the music right, and you get the wine and the food right, magic happens. No talking heads, no themes, no panels, none of that. Just get the right people in the room because we all work so hard and we're kind of in our tunnels, whether it is in that kind of like, you know, set of milestones you got to hit or next round you got to get to or whatever it is. So when you get out with people that are great people having fun, magic happens. So then I love the line Princess Diana had, which was, you can't comfort the afflicted without afflicting the comfortable. So the sponsors that write a check to do the event, we charge them more than the price of the food and beverage because we're going to donate it to a kid's charity. And everybody that comes through the door to get that $400 dinner is going to give a hundred bucks to buy a couple of raffle tickets. So we end up We've raised about $2 million over 16 years, which ain't that much, but it moves the needle for First Star and the Boys and Girls Clubs of Venice and Santa Monica and City Year Los Angeles and CARS, an amazing organization in the South Bay that gives kids that are first generation an opportunity to get out of high school and go to college. So it's like build a community, give back to the community. And once people go, it's like, hey, when's the next one? Hey, how come I didn't get invited to the last one? You know, so we... We run us and now post COVID, you know, everybody's dying to get back out and do things in real life. Yeah. And then how do you know about all the best places to do these things? I'll share a story with you. My one of my best friends from college, Gilbert Voltaggio, his father moved from Sicily to live with them before he died in uh, Chicago. And he was on his deathbed and Gil comes into the room and he says, Grandpa, what did you learn about life? He says, uh, I tell you, Gilbert, I eat good. I eat good. That was it. I just eat good. You know? I was like, I took those words to heart. And so why get a B meal when you could say, hey, let's go raise a little bit more money and really hit the bid at Nobu or Mastro's or AOC or fill in the blank or at Toscana where we were last. So. Yeah, totally. It is a lot of fun. I always look forward to the invites because it's like, ooh, like what amazing meal and new spot I've, that's probably been in LA for 30, 40 years. I've never heard of and that's like an institution. So it's a real secret. There is Brittany, who's the heart and soul of Thursday nights. She is like the foodie extraordinaire and she's got every venue wired and every private dining room. And, and then Jordan, who's the sommelier, he's picking the wine and negotiate with their folks. So I'm in very good company with my partners in Thursday nights. Any all, Vinny and you and others always helping to curate the room. Yeah, you got the all-star team. And then do you have a really special Big Brother story uh, that I think is really incredible? And I didn't realize the longevity of this story until 
late last year. You want to kind of hip our audience to your awesome big brother story? So my partner, Mimi, we've been soulmates and a couple for next year will be 40 years. We've only been married for 15, but she had two kids and I wasn't the stepdad. I was her kid's friend. I'm grandpa to the grandkids, but I always wanted to kind of have kids and give something back to kids. And so I became a big brother a long time ago, about 30 years ago. And uh, Danny, my little brother, was eight years old. He was living in the projects, Mar Vista Gardens on the West Side. And I became his big brother and we've been brothers ever since. And uh, there was like, and then Michael, his brother had a big brother who kind of didn't show up. So I was really both of their big brother. And we've just gone through an amazing journey together. I have five sisters. All I ever wanted my whole life was a brother. And so I've learned from Danny. We've gone through kind of an amazing journey and highs and lows, but we're brothers and we have a great time. The two of them helped to build a business, take it through an IPO via SPAC and scaled it. One ran operations and all of the kind of manufacturing and the other was the chief revenue officer. And now they're starting a new company and they asked me to join the family business and advise them and invest and help them to raise capital. So now we're doing that and I'm super excited about it. Yeah, it's Danny Coral. Is that how you say his last name? Coral or Coral? Coral. Coral. I've known him a long time through you because he's at all the events and uh, he's such a great guy. And you always used to refer to him as your little brother, but I thought it was like a euphemism. I didn't realize it was literally like your, you know, when Danny and I hung out, I think at the Thursday night event in 2021, and, and I got that context and I was just absolutely gobsmacked. Like, that was so cool. <laughs> you know, everybody's like, oh, it's so amazing. I'm just like, hey, I got my dream true. I got two little brothers and we are, we have a fabulous time together. And they're now building a company that I'm just kind of helping them. And we're coming into town when a week and a half, Danny and I are going to see our Clippers play. We had, I had season tickets. The first two seasons in the sports arena and Danny went to the Clippers games with me. He's like a diehard Clippers fan ever since. How fun. That's amazing. One of the core themes of the show is humanizing success. And, you know, you're aware of some of the challenges that I've dealt with. And, you know, having said that, what's a challenge personally or professionally, JJ, that you've had to overcome and that you're comfortable sharing with us? And how'd you get over the hurdle and what gift did that experience give you? I got to tell you, I am one lucky guy. At first, I was like the wild ride of founding a software company, raising capital in 99, getting acquired in 2000, going through that whole, I was like an MBA through that. But it's like you take your lumps and learn from it. The biggest challenge for me was as we got toward COVID. So again, Mimi's my partner and I wasn't dad to her kids. She was a mom. When I spun People Mover out of MicroJ, Mimi took the steaming pile of code and the steaming team after we kind of taken all the top performers out. And she took it from death's door to running it profitably for 15 years. And I've always just been able to be the entrepreneur, go, 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 always on, workaholic, crazed maniac. And I've never really had a job. I mean, my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Meisterling, told me, you do not respect authority. <laughs> and I'm kind of broken. I've just always been an entrepreneur and I'm crazy. and I just run. But in a partnership, you know, there's two people and I've, the challenge I've taken on over the last several years, especially during COVID was creating space, being respectful. Mimi always has my back. She always is there for me. 
she's always kind of picking me up and you know, and calming down the Tasmanian devil. So I think the challenge I faced of becoming more patient, becoming more calm, creating space has been a huge challenge, but the rewards are amazing because you and I are thriving and we're super happy. And I've kind of, and all the years of taking for granted all the amazing things she did for me, I'm trying to show up for her. She just had a knee replacement surgery. So that was a really tough recovery. She's out of physical therapy now and doing great. And we're seeing the time of getting back to travel, have a lot of fun. But I think that was a big challenge. I think some of the biggest lessons that I've had in my professional life are I'm the eternal optimist and promoter. Our mutual friend, Yuri Pickover, one time said to me, he goes, Jonathan never met the candidate he didn't like. It's like learning to not sell the candidate and just be that advocate to the point where you're like overselling. You got to underpromise and overdeliver. Jim Armstrong is one of the smartest venture capitalists and people and investors I've ever known. He said, I teach my CEOs that when you're talking to the board of directors, every conversation starts like this. Houston, we have a problem. Challenges here, headwinds there super complex. So again, it's like, don't promote up to here because it's going to be really hard to hit. It's like under promise and over deliver. Well, I think to speak to the progress you've made, that's who I know you to be is to be someone who's grounded and rational and really, I'll just kind of call it like it is. So, and I think to the insight that you were talking about through COVID, some of that relate to a meditation practice too. Is that one of the t things? Save my marriage, I would say. Yeah. Amen to that. That's amazing. And Mimi is the best. Well, thank you for sharing that. I can identify with a lot of that stuff myself. And yeah, we just converted at our new house, one of the uh, extra bedrooms. We got this big house into a fitness room and it's this awesome space where you could do yoga and, and all that kind of thing. And I got my Peloton in there and just to kind of, you know, take the dogs for a walk in the morning and get some stretching in and if I and set my intention for the day. And if I've done that, I've won. I agree. I found the most amazing boxing trainer out here in the desert and I go three mornings a week. And the best part is all I have to do is show up. And an hour later, I'm drenched and exhausted and feeling great. Yeah. Amen. Last couple of uh, questions and we'll let you go. Hopefully you're going to get to play some golf today. Well, you know what? Actually, I'm just going to do one. If you could, you know how much I love music. I know you love music too. If you could have any artist, any band, a singer, songwriter, rapper, you know, any sort of musical act play any venue in the world, past, present, or future, who would it be anywhere? I'd go John Coltrane, Wiltern Theater, mic drop. I love it. Amazing. How can our audience be helpful to you if people want to connect? What's a good channel? I'm really great on email, jim at jja.co. We're about to start posting and sharing a lot of our methodology and what we've learned via some essays and blog posts and outlets like this. So check us out on LinkedIn. And I would say I'm good at responding to emails. In general, we're going to try to share the knowledge and what we've learned and some of the tools like the career diagnostic and how to tune up your resume. We're going to put out in the next 30 days. Here is literally a blueprint for your job search and your career search. So we're trying to raise the bar for our industry and really help talent out there to find that great match and that next great move. Awesome. Well, JJ, thank you for being such a friend and a mentor and ubermensch to me and so many others. You make the world a better place. And uh, hopefully we'll get to play some golf and uh, share a glass of wine with you soon. And I can't wait to see you again very soon, my friend. Yes. 
I would share back the same thing, send my biggest hug to Holden and look forward to seeing you guys really soon. All right. 2023, baby. Yeah, man, let's go. Thanks again to Jim Jonasson for being our awesome guest. And I cannot wait for another Thursday night event soon. I'm at Curdy D on Twitter and Instagram. Also Kurt Derdix on LinkedIn. And until next time, Curdy D loves you. Thanks for listening. To review the show notes for this episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, and any links mentioned, visit curdyd.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts to be notified when new episodes go live. Stay tuned for more unique perspectives shaping the world on The Curdy D Show.